you'd like to open your Bibles or locate in your Bible, um, Revelation chapter 1. We're actually going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2 today, but we need the last few verses of Revelation 1 to set the context for Revelation 2. Last Sunday, we talked about John, who on a what started out as a very normal Sunday morning for him, ultimately led to a very unusual encounter for him with Jesus. And Jesus was revealed to John in all of his glory as the conquering son of God, as the victorious king. And as if you remember, John was in the spirit, which we aren't quite sure what that means, and uh, suddenly heard this massive voice from behind him that sounded like uh, a, a massive trumpet and the sound of rushing waters. And he turned around and he saw Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand and walking in the midst of seven lampstands. And today we'll, at the end of chapter one, look at briefly what those lampstands and stars represent, and then we'll move into talking about a church in a city called Ephesus, and we'll read the first of seven letters John was to write to seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey. So I would invite you to locate verse 18. Actually, let's start in verse 17, um, and then we'll read down through verse 7 of chapter 2. So beginning in chapter 1 and verse 17, down through chapter 2 and verse 7. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And I hope that you will never be able to read Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus says, Fear not. I hope you'll never read that the same again, based on what we talked about last week. When he lays his hand down on John and says, Don't be afraid. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after, after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In an attempt at humor and emphasis last week, I used a comment from pop culture, which I would like to say is current pop culture, but it, I'm old. And, it, and my comment was regarding John's experience, and it was that we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. As John turned around, everything was turned upside down, and everything changed for John at that time. But it could also be used, that phrase was regarding what John experienced, but it could also be used regarding our experience as we move forward in this letter, that we aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. The, the reality of the letter of Revelation of Jesus Christ is that the first 17 verses are pretty easy to interpret. And from there on out, good luck. It gets, uh, it gets exciting. As, as you just do the first, you know, as a good pastor, just do those first few verses and then move on to another book. But uh, we're going to go through this. So what I'm saying is from here on out, things are going to get a little more difficult to understand. And we'll start with, for example, what are the stars, what are the seven stars, and what are the seven lampstands? And you'd say, well, Jesus tells us. He says the seven stars are are the messengers to the church and the seven lampstands are the church. And that sounds really simple, but it isn't. We'll start first with the easy one of those two, the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands represent seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus explains that. And uh, they are seven churches over whom John has had pastoral influence. And John is going to be writing seven letters to these seven churches. And actually, it appears that the intent is that there are letters to individual churches, but then those letters are going to circulate uh, amongst those seven churches. Uh, they say, I don't know how they know this for sure, but they say, the important people say, that, uh, that it was the way the mail moved in those days, which, you know, they... They didn't have little white trucks and they didn't have the Pony Express. They just had people that moved letters between places. But uh, the, the, the seven churches were arranged in a way that followed the way that mail moved in those days. So it went from Ephesus to the next city to the next city to the next city. And it was just a counterclockwise motion between those seven cities. So these are seven closely linked cities and John, who had been the pastor of the church in Ephesus, um, was very familiar with these seven churches, uh, along with, obviously, very closely affiliated with the church in Ephesus. What are the lampstands? Well, it's a good question, but it would appear there's a couple possible options, and they're actually kind of interconnected. Most likely, the imagery is connected to the Old Testament temple in which the lampstand stood. Remember, 
when we were in Numbers and there was the golden lampstand, when you walked into the tabernacle or later into the temple before you got to the Holy of Holies, there was on the left side uh, this massive golden um, lampstand with seven lamps, uh, oil-burning lamps at the top of it. That represented the presence and power of God. And as the Old Testament unfolds, what we learn is it actually represented the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with God's people. And then later in the Gospels, Jesus talks about that famous, if you have a, a, a lamp, you don't hide it under a basket. Remember that story that Jesus said? You don't hide a lamp under a basket, you set it on a stand. And, and that the light that would come out from it had influence and ultimately uh, witness to the people uh, surrounding the Jews uh, called Gentiles. That is the simplest and probably the best uh, explanation of those lampstands, and it's the best. I didn't make it up, so I'm not standing here going, that's, I, I did a really good job. I think that's the best among the commentators out there as to what those lampstands represented. So the, so the, the imagery here is each church um, has the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and is to be a uh, light-emitting um, uh, organization or organism to surrounding unbelievers. But then we get to the stars, the seven stars. And Jesus says they represent the messengers to the seven churches. So the idea here is every church has a messenger, and at first blush, it would seem to be speaking of the pastors of the seven churches, human beings. Each church having a pastor, and Jesus speaking through John, writing the letters to the pastor of the seven churches. There's all kinds of problems with that idea, biblically. Um, especially if you consider that the early churches were probably elder-led, at least, if not elder-rule. And so you had multiple pastors at each church. Plus, the other little problem is that in the Old Testament, that term that's translated messenger is actually, in the Greek, the word for angels. So the predominant view is that each church had a guardian angel, so to speak, who was in some way representative, represented that church and was held accountable for that church. I think that idea is fraught with problems as well. But those are the two main views. I forgot to mention that there are six main views of what that means. And there are six main views. When you hear someone say there are two main views, that means there's all kinds of other views that surround it. So this one has six main views with all kinds of other ideas surrounding it. So I'm gonna definitively say that I do not know what the stars represent. So how's that for a nice Sunday morning start? I have no clue. Um, and I'm not, I, I don't argue with people about it and I just look at the arguments. Um, but so we're not in Kansas anymore. We just left all the easy parts, and now we're going to get into these strange symbols. But in some way, 
there, are some, there is some kind of messenger connected with each church that the letter is going to be written to. Now, I wanna say this. After teaching in college for 16 years, what I learned is that freshmen have parts of their brains functioning and parts of it not functioning. Parts of their brains are just being burned up by extra hormones and they don't know what to do with that. So that's, sorry to Jeffrey. Um, it's just the way it is. Um, but uh, sophomores, probably everybody has heard the term sophomores who's been in a college. Sophomores actually means wise fools. That's about right for a sophomore. Uh, it's not until their senior year that they start to realize how much they have learned and how much they still don't know and they start to panic because they're about to graduate and go out in the big wide world. But my observation over 16 years was that students would take a class and suddenly be experts on a particular topic or they'd read a commentary or they'd read a book and they'd suddenly be an expert on a, on a topic. And uh, what they would do is then burrow down into something really obscure and insignificant, which means that they're on a good track to become a PhD someday, because that's what they do, and they end up being able to talk about things that nobody else understands, and that they're kind of like, like David uh, Miller at lunch. I didn't know he had his PhD, and we were sitting at lunch, and I found that out, and I said, so what did you get it in? And he told us at the table, and I was like, hmm, I have no idea what that even is. And then he started talking, and it was just like, he was talking with, who was he talking with? It might, it might have been Tim. But they started talking, and it was just like a whole other language. Right? It's just going on. So it, it becomes so specialized that there's just very few people who know what that is. What we do in churches is very similar. A lot of people will come to these kind of things like the six or seven messengers, and, and it's like, I'm going to figure out what that means. And you know what they end up doing? They miss the rest of the passage because they are so obsessed with that one thing that they're trying to figure out. And, and wisdom says very, very smart people for hundreds of years, thousands of years now, have been trying to figure out exactly what that means, and they don't know. So let's just set that aside and look at the main meat of the passage. And that's what we need to do as we go through Revelation. Let go of the things that are, are uh, less important, so to speak, and look at the greater and sometimes more obvious truth that's right in front of us. And what's the most important thing from this passage is the message sent to the church of Ephesus through John from Jesus. So what I wanna do this morning and I'll do this with each of these, these churches, is give a little background information on their culture, um, talk about some things relative to history, if that's important, and then we'll talk about spiritually what's going on there at that church and what they were commended for, uh, what they were not commended for, uh, rebuked for, if there is that. With a couple churches, there are no rebukes but what they were rebuked for and what the solution is to the problem that's going on in that church. So we'll start with Ephesus and we'll start with the culture. At the time of the writing of Revelation, um, Ephesus was the most significant, most influential, and most wealthy church in 
all of Asia, or not church, city in all of Asia. It was a place where everybody came to to get to the west and everybody came to to go to the east. It was a port city. And so things came in from all over the world and flowed through Ephesus. It was a very cosmopolitan city. It was the center of worship for a goddess named Artemis. If you're familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, um, uh, there's a Greek name, or there's a name for the Greek worship and there's a name for the Roman worship. Uh, In Rome, for the Roman people, um, Artemis was uh, corollary to Diana. Uh, Artemis was the goddess of the hunt she was the goddess of, this is really funny to me, really strange. She was the goddess of chastity. She was the goddess of virgins, and she was the goddess of fertility. Uh, for being the goddess of chastity and virgins, the worship of, of Diana and Artemis was off the charts immoral, just unbelievably bad. Uh, basically, to keep it as, um, so I don't get school board protests for teaching things to to children that they don't need to hear. Basically, um, you would go to the temple, engage in particular acts in order to arouse Diana, which, or Artemis, and that would then uh, make her uh, bless the people because she was so happy and felt so good. So it was the, the temple, had approximately a thousand prostitutes that were called priestesses and priests. And that's how you went to church on Sunday if they had church services there on Sunday. It was uh, incredibly immoral and corrupt. The temple to uh, Artemis, uh, was the, the worship of Artemis, it took place in other cities, particularly Corinth. And Corinth was just as bad as Ephesus. But the temple to Diana at the time was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was massive. It was this huge structure. And if you go home and want to Google the temple to Artemis, it's just beautiful what they did. It had, it had been built three times. Uh, it was very important to the people of Ephesus. They were insistent upon building it themselves. It got burned down one time. Um, it was destroyed in a flood another time. And, and they had offers from outside people to help rebuild it, and they refused the help because it was their goddess and they were going to take care of her. Uh, but it's a massive structure. Um, just kind of a little tidbit of information. At the end of this, they're promised if they conquer to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. In the temple of Diana, it originally started, the temple of Artemis, the, the worship of Artemis originally started outside of what became the city. They, the legends are it was started by the Amazons, and, um, but one of the things that seems to have carried through, they used to worship under a massive oak tree inside of a kind of a privy that was built around that. And, and so when they built the massive temple, then inside of there was, was a tree. It was built around the tree. Eventually the tree died. But every time they rebuilt the temple, part of that tree was retained and kept inside the new temple. 
So there's this corollary to the people of abandon Diana and her tree, and if you do, you will receive the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. There's corollaries there, and some of those I can't even get into because of time this morning. But the worship of, of uh, Artemis, we can trace that back, and by the time that this letter was written, that cult had, lived, had been in existence for over a thousand years. It was just an ongoing, long-term worship practice um, that had completely permeated the culture of Ephesus. So Ephesus was a cesspool. Uh, one, of the, one of the philosophers of the day said basically the best thing that could happen to the city of Ephesus is they all be drowned in a sewer. And uh, that was because they were so corrupt and nasty. We know that the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus in the mid-50s. And as a result of his preaching, first he went into the synagogue and got the Jewish leaders riled up like he liked to do. And they, they were all mad at him, and so he, they kicked him out of the synagogue. And then he went out into the city streets and started preaching, and people started turning to Christ. And then there was a riot in the city. Um, it, it, all I can think of is like European Soccer League that uh, they, they just did this riot because of one guy who was leading it, who the, they would make these little idols that people would buy, representing Artemis, and they'd buy it and that raise funds for them and for the temple. But they started this riot against Paul that went for hours until Paul was arrested and put in jail. And they were trying to stop his preaching from happening. But eventually Paul was released, and as a result of that, with the new believers, they founded the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, which was in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you for chuckling, at least. According to tradition, after Paul left, Timothy became the pastor. Uh, Timothy was the one that Paul referred to as his son in the faith. And Timothy became the pastor of uh, the church there for many years. Uh, there's a couple different stories about what happened with Timothy, but basically uh, the one that seems the most credible is that he was beat to death um, by supporters of, during, during one of the peak worship times of the year for, Diane, for Artemis, um, the, the worshipers of Ar Artemis beat Timothy to death in the streets. And later, then, when the destruction of Jerusalem came in AD 70, and the church, the, the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem, and the, the, which was also the headquarters for the church, so to speak, the Apostle John moved to Ephesus, became the pastor of the church there, and as the last surviving apostle became the de facto leader of the Christian movement from that day. So at the time of the writing of this letter, um, Ephesus is the center of the, of the church, so to speak. So Ephesus is not only an important church because it's in an important city, but it's an important church because it is the center of Christian worship in that day because of John being there. So when John, most people believe that when John was on the Isle of Patmos for the name of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, that he actually had been pastoring in Ephesus at that time, had been arrested, put in 
prison, so to speak, and now uh, is writing to the church that he is the pastor of, but he's, he's absent from it. And, uh, and he's, he's hearing Jesus talk to him about his church. As we begin to read the letter that was dictated to John by Jesus, we might be impressed with the church of Ephesus as Jesus himself commends them. As I read this letter, uh, every time I read it, I, if you stop at the end of verse 3, you kind of walk away with the sense of this is an amazing church. This is just an incredible church. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is a great church. If you went and visited the church of Ephesus in those days, you probably would have walked away with the sense of this is the way it should be done. I want to be part of this church. Twice, Jesus references their patient endurance and says that they have not grown weary. These are people who have worked hard for the advance of the gospel in an incredibly hostile culture. And they remain steadfast and they've been, remained faithful in the face of hard persecution. These are people who have not quit on Jesus. And if you, let me say this too, if you think that our culture is going down the tubes, which it may be, our culture, we would look, like I said last week, we would look like a bunch of, America today would look like a bunch of Sunday school kids who are all the bright and shining kids in Sunday school compared to what was going on in Ephesus at that time. It was just an incredibly immoral place to live. And these people have been trying to spread the gospel in their community in a place that is very, very hostile to them. And Jesus says, as my friend from Australia would say, good on you. You're doing great. Keep it up. Don't quit. I love what you've been doing well. They've had people come in who want to influence the church in the wrong direction. They're sound. These people, these people are so biblically sound. They know their doctrine and their theology so well. It matters to them. They know it so well that when false teachers come in, which are probably Jewish legalists, or the Nicolaitans come in, who are probably the opposite license people saying you can do whatever you want and God doesn't care. These people know their doctrine so well, they know their theology so well, they know their Bibles, what they have of them so well that they don't allow these people to stay in the church. They drive them out. They expose them and they drive them out. These people 
value a lifestyle that flows from God's word and not from whole human culture or reasoning. They live by what we would call today a biblical worldview. And all I can say is, what a church. What a church to be a part of, what a church to pastor, and what wonderful words to hear from Jesus. But then there's this teeny tiny little problem which if you were listening, you heard about. And it's something that all of us struggle with. And Jesus says, it's not something that was forgotten. It's not something that was just lost. It's something that Jesus uses the word abandoned. Abandoned carries with it the idea of intentionality. I didn't just thought I put it in my pocket and I actually didn't, it fell out. It isn't that I forgot to pick it up and put it in my pocket today. And by the way, it's been a month and a half and I still have my cross. So when I stick my hand in my pocket, I remember I need to live by the power of Jesus and that he's with me. Two months is coming up in a couple weeks and so by then I'll probably have left it on the dresser and I'll forget it because two months again is the threshold for guys. That's how long we keep our attention. But these people didn't just forget to put it in their pocket, they just went. That's what abandoned means. Jesus says you've abandoned something. And I've, I couldn't tell you how many sermons I've heard from this, this passage on the seven churches. How many of you have heard a sermon on Ephesus? This, Ray, man, you guys are poorly taught. I just can't believe how bad this is. If you, it's just you didn't grow up in the right circles. If you grew up in the circles where you have a revival meeting every year at your church, um, or two or three like we did, somebody's going to go to the church of Ephesus and somebody's going to go to the church of Laodicea. You just are going to get there. So I can't tell you how many times I've heard sermons on this passage. But all the sermons I've heard on this passage, I could summarize most of them with a particular song title from back in the day, sung by two brothers called the Righteous Brothers, so a few of you are going, oh, yeah, I remember the Righteous Brothers, and the rest of you are going, I have no clue. So all six of us that know the Righteous Brothers here this morning, but they had a song called, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Now that's going to be in some people's heads the rest of the day. That's basically what the sermons have revolved around, because Jesus says... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And so this whole idea of you've lost that loving feeling has been the emphasis of all the sermons that I've heard in regard to this passage. But for me, personally, something about that approach doesn't seem to add up. And it doesn't seem to add up because of a little question that nags in my mind. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so to turn that around, 
The question would be this, doesn't their commendation from Jesus demonstrate their love for Jesus? These are people of the book. These are people who are seeking to live in a culture in a godly way. These are people that don't accept false teaching or false influences. These are people who have patiently endured and doesn't faithfulness in trial demonstrate love for Jesus? So how how do we understand how do we understand this connection of obedience to Christ means that you love Christ and yet these people who appear to love Jesus because of the way they live are being accused of abandoning their love their first love So that's kind of where I want to work from this morning. Isn't the evidence of loving Jesus that I do good works? Haven't I taught that to you over and over again? And what Jesus is saying here is basically that it's possible to be faithful and to not love Jesus. Jesus did say, if we love him, we will obey him. But in answer to this question, I would suggest to you this morning that it is possible to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. It's possible to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And that's what I think Jesus' point is. Tried to think of a way to illustrate this, and maybe I could help you to understand it through the lens of a marriage relationship that's gone wrong. There's an old saying that I don't like because Terry told me it's a bad saying, so I don't like it. No, actually, the first time I heard it, I was just like, hmm, something's not right about that. And then I started thinking and come to other conclusions about why it's not right. But this is the old saying, very popular. If mama ain't happy, finish it for me. Nobody's happy. If mama's not happy, nobody's happy. I would hope that you understand all of the wrong thinking that goes into that statement. What that statement communicates is that mama is so self-absorbed and moody that if she doesn't get what she wants, nobody else is going to get what they want. It's all about mama and what mama wants. I'm sorry if that's your favorite saying. I hope you'll still be my friend. But because of, because of mama's making sure that if she doesn't get what she wants, everybody else is going to be unhappy, the relationship between mama and everyone else becomes transactional. You do it to keep mama happy. 
It's not love-based anymore. Everyone may be doing the right thing to make mama happy. They might be obeying mama and they might be serving mama and it may be flourishing, but it's not motivated by love. It's motivated by something else. More likely, what drives the obedience and the service is a desire for peace, the avoidance of fear, or maybe just the avoidance of mama. It's Mother's Day. What a, what a thing to talk about on Mother's Day. I would translate that over to the Christian life and say that it is possible to do all Jesus commanded you to do with entirely the wrong motivation. That motivation, or that what I would call driving factor, might be power or position in the church organization. It might be the avoidance of criticism, judgment. It might be a desire for self-affirmation. Everybody coming along and saying, boy, you're just... And I'm not saying you shouldn't affirm people. Do that. Let them know how you see the graciousness of God at work in their life. But for some people, that's the reason they do what they do. For some people, they're afraid of the judgment of God or man. Or they're afraid of the loss of relationships. And there can be a myriad number of other reasons. But love for Jesus got left behind got abandoned a very long time ago. I'm just going to say this flat out. I've been, I've been doing this pastor thing for almost 21 years, and, and I've come to learn that people at church are often not the same as they are away from church. I've come to learn that people act around pastors one way and around everybody else another way. I've had more people than I can count who have used some of the worst language in my presence and then look at me and say, oh, I'm sorry, because they just remembered I was a pastor. Or they'll say, pardon my French. And I, my, my response has finally become, I'm not the one you need to worry about. I'm not Jesus. But there's something about church life that I've found that there's this dichotomy between Sundays and, and every other day. There's actually a dichotomy, a dichotomy between what is happening all the way to church till the time that we open the car doors, and then there's this whole new life that walks out of the car, it must be just the presence of the Holy Spirit at the building, and then they go back to the car afterwards and the doors close and it all starts back up again. And they're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And for the Church of Ephesus, it's something that has permeated the entire body 
to the degree that Jesus says, you know what, you're doing a lot of stuff great. But you, you, you abandoned, you intentionally walked away from your first love. And as you think about the problem, I want you to consider that it's a big enough deal that Jesus says he'll have to come and remove their lampstand from its place unless they repent. And I can't tell you how many people I've read who say, and the fact that there is not a thriving church in Ephesus today means that that happened and they didn't change. And I'm just like, it's been 2,000 years. You expect that same, you know. Actually, a guy named Ignatius, who was one of the early church fathers and was some, some history from him that we can glean, said that there came a time in the church at Ephesus where there was just a fervor that came through the church and that they actually, he was writing in response to this letter and said that there was there was a turnaround in the hearts of the people in Ephesus and the church flourished. I don't think that what Jesus is saying is that's going to be the end of your church as an organization and your buildings are going to decay and your people are going to leave to the point that, that it's gone forever. If the lampstands are connected to the Holy Spirit's presence and power, my argument would be that Jesus is going to come and say to the Holy Spirit, you're here. Don't empower them. Don't give them a sense of your presence. Let them do their thing on their own. which to me is far worse than losing your building. It's far worse than the sign being gone. It's far worse than the closing of a church. What's far worse is to be a part of an organization that is going through the motions completely in human power and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the solution? What do you do about it? Jesus says there's two things that he wants them to do. He wants them to remember and he wants them to repent. He wants them to remember. What does he want them to remember? Well, when we hear you've abandoned your first love, there's just tons of really unhealthy relational advice that comes out of that in, com in, in commentaries and people writing on this passage. You lost your first love. Well, what does first love feel like? Oh, first love, you remember when you first saw them and that, that sense inside of you, that, that emotion that just built up and they were so beautiful and they were so wonderful. And in those first, those first love, that first blush, they could do no wrong. And I thought, seriously, we, we aren't really going to argue that our relationship with Christ should be like puppy love. 
We have couples here who have been married for a very long time. How long have you guys been married? 55 years. And you guys? 54? Um, Dr. Chandra? 50? Okay. Couch, oh no, no, you're not that old yet. <laughs> I just had to do that. John and Pamela, how long have you guys been married? 50? Okay. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anybody here that's in the. That is a long time to be married. Terry and I, this summer, will be 41. I was, I was hoping to make it to seven when we first were married. I was just like, if we can make it to seven years, then I know that we can make it because there was this whole thing about the seven-year itch, and, and Terry can tell you how fast I turn over cars, and I, I've, I told her the other day, I've been through a lot of cars in my life, um, but I've, I've never regretted marrying you, and I've never wanted to be married to anybody else, which I think does shock her because I, I had such an issue with commitment. But I thought seven years, if I can make it to seven years, I know we're gonna be good. And now it's 41 years and it's just like, wow. But how many of you that are in that time frame would really want to go back to the puppy love days of infatuation, drooling over each other and, oh. We all, anybody who's been married that long knows that that wasn't love. That was infatuation. That was lust. That may, there's a whole lot of things that go into that. But it wasn't real love. When you meet couples, and I'm very thankful for the couples we have here, and I'm very thankful for the, for the relationships that they have as husbands and wives, because they all still seem to be friends. And that's not something you see a lot anymore. What we call puppy love is not healthy. What is a healthy relationship is one that has grown to the point that they are real friends in spite of all of the things that they've learned about the other person. And they enjoy being with each other. And they know each other so well they can finish each other's sentences. Last night, Terry looked at me and said, did you? And I said, no. And Alyssa was sitting there and said, what? And, and I just looked at Terry and I said, plugged in my iPad. And she just smiled. And Alyssa thinks, you know, we're, we're aliens because we can communicate that way. But there's, there is, in a healthy relationship, there isn't puppy love. There, there, is, there is a bond that is unexplainable in some ways. And you can't imagine not living without them for a moment. I really don't think that Jesus is encouraging the church at Ephesus that you need to feel differently about me. It isn't that they've lost the loving feeling, they've lost love. I would suggest this morning that we are to remember the motivation that grew, that forcefulness of drive that we experienced as an awareness of God's love for us blossomed in our souls.
I would suggest that it's that sense of forgiveness and freedom as the chains of our sins were broken. Even if it's not something that can be defined in a certain time and place, there was a growing sense of his presence and gifts that produced an affectionate gratitude towards him. I was a six-year-old boy when I came to know Christ. I was not, you know, a serial killer or addicted to heroin or anything like that. I was just an over-exuberant six-year-old boy. And I can remember that morning like it's yesterday and you've heard me talk about it, but I remember after, after praying with our pastor's wife, and it wasn't a rote prayer, she just told me, just, just talk to God, talk to him. But I remember walking out of that room and there was just this sense of freedom. There was this sense of, of wonder there was this sense of relief in a six-year-old boy. No deep theological stuff going on, guarantee you. But I couldn't wait to tell my parents what had happened. And I remember going to school and telling my friend that I had trusted Christ and he was unsaved and he just looked at me and went, what? I said, I believed in Jesus. Okay, and you need to believe in Jesus. Why? Because you're going to go to hell. What's hell? I mean, it was just, and I was just like, oh, uh, I don't know what else to say. You know, I just, that was it. But there was, there, it wasn't puppy love. It was, it was the reality of, I believe, the indwelling Holy Spirit and the reality of the truth of Christ that was driving something inside of me. And I think probably for all of us, to some degree or another, we can relate to those ideas. As the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and opened our ears and opened our hearts, as the Holy Spirit did what Jesus promised he would do and he, he convinced you of your sin, he convinced you of your need of Jesus and probably convinced you of the coming judgment. There was something that happened in you that you could feel, but it was more than just sparks flying and the first blush of lovey, lovey, dovey stuff. It was a sense of, of I'm free, I'm clean, and, I'm, and God's okay with me. There's different ways you could say that. And now, years down the road, once in a while there are glimpses of that. There are, there are times when it all of a sudden crosses your mind, but somewhere it's just been left behind. It's just not part of your life anymore. Church is something that you do. I was, I was talking to a pastor friend the other day and he was talking about how their daughter, uh, who, who is living somewhere else now, she came back to see them that weekend and was at the services with them. And, and he said it was really nice to, to be able to do church with her again. And I knew what he meant, but I just, maybe I was just being judgmental, but I thought, seriously? 
I smiled at him, I didn't rebuke him, I was nice, but inside I was a hypocrite maybe. We do church. We got it done, we checked it off, it was something we did together. Instead of the wonder of God's word at work in us and teaching us, you say, well, if we had God communicate it better, maybe that would happen. Folks, it's not the person who's communicating it. It's, it's your openness and receptiveness and love for the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I've sat through really, 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 really bad sermons. And I've thought, he's really, 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 really missing the point of the passage because we all do it at one time or another. And I came to realize that if I know the point of the passage, I shouldn't be getting irritated at him. I should be in, in work with the Holy Spirit to think about the, the, what the passage is saying and what I should be doing with it in my own life, not sitting there criticizing the guy because he couldn't communicate. There are days when an unexpected truth sometimes stirs, stirs a bit in our soul, but we're just not driven or motivated by what Jesus has done for us anymore. And if you remember, if that has struck any chord with you this morning, if you remember what that was like, Jesus tells us what to do. He says, repent. Repent. Remember and repent. That's a nice compact word meaning that deep in your soul you want to be done with just doing. You want to be done with just showing up. And folks, let me encourage you to understand that, that that doesn't mean that you need to find another church where they're doing it in a way that makes you feel better. Because you'll go there and you'll be dissatisfied. We live in a commercial world. We live in a consumer-based world where it's all about how did I feel this morning? And we sang a hymn this morning, and if, the, if, the, if it wasn't quite the way you wanted it performed, or it was a hymn and you don't really like hymns anymore, I'm just going to say to you, why are you not, I'm going to ask you, why are you not just listening to the words of the song and singing truth to your God from a heart that loves him? Instead of having to have this whole production I am so thankful for the people that we have in our music team here because with every single one of them, it's not about a performance. And it's led by a guy who's not about performance. It's about how can we minister in people's lives? And what are we going to sing and say this morning when we gather? Do you want to be done with just doing? And I would suggest to you two things. And there are two things that every healthy relationship is built upon, regardless of marriage or friendship or whatever. Listening and speaking. 
listening and speaking. Deep in your soul, choose to listen again for God's voice as you spend time in his word. We have come to a point in Christianity in America where we read our Bibles to get something out of them. Or we read our Bibles because it's what we're supposed to do every day, or at least sometime during the week. So I'm, or it's because I have a goal to read all through the Bible this year. This is God's word. That's why I started saying that every Sunday. These are God's words. Peter says that we, that we as pastors speak as the oracle of God. In other words, God is speaking through us to you. And particularly when we read God's word, we become an oracle of God to put it into an auditory form that you hear God. We need to get to the point, we need to get back to the point where we read God's word because we want to know about God. We want to hear him tell us what he's like and what he's about. I preached for the first time when I was 15 in a public format. I've been a pastor for 21 years. I was a Bible teacher for about 10 years at the college. I preach this, I teach this because I believe it is God speaking to us. Listen. Read God's word and listen to what he is saying just like you would with anyone you want to have a good relationship with. And second, talking with him. Not just learning of him, not just longing to know him better, not just admiring him and praising him for what you learn of him, but talking with him, telling him how you're feeling, talking with him about how your day has gone, what made you happy, what frustrated you, what crushed your soul. We call it praying, but we have really screwed up prayer. We've made it very loveless, very regimented, and very selfish. Let me read you how we typically pray it with all of the niceties stripped away from it. Hey God, supposed to say something good about you, so yeah, you're powerful, that's, that's good. Now let's get down to business. Here's my list of needs and wants. And if you don't come through on it, well, let's not talk about that because you will if I believe. So hop to it now, God. By the way, thanks for fixing the car, but what about the other problems? I'm really tired of having to keep reminding you about Aunt Susie's toe fungus. In Jesus' name, amen. Because we all know we're supposed to pray in Jesus' name. Now, I took all the glitter and glitz and glamour off of how we pray, but that's really what it boils down to. Tell something good to God about himself. Give him my list of things that I want. It's like Santa Claus and his lap at Christmas. And then 
throw Jesus in there somewhere just for good luck. Think about how that would build a relationship with anybody else in your life. Hey, Terry, you're a good person. Made a great breakfast this morning. But here's a list of things you haven't done lately. Um, and this one has really been bugging me that you haven't taken care of it. Thanks. Good talk. And we call that prayer. And Terry would just start crying. Because she would know that I abandon my love for her. Jesus ends with a promise. For all those who conquer, meaning all those who are believers, they partake of the tree of life in the paradise of God. There's three very quick things that I want to share with you in relation to that. First, if you choose to remember and repent, you will live in the victory of a loving relationship with God. Second, most people believe that the tree of life refers to life in the presence of God. It represents living in the presence of God. That means that the promise here is that forever you will enjoy being with the one you love, completely loved and accepted. I have said to Terry so many times that I, I, it really bothers me that there will not be marriage in heaven. There will not be marriage on the new earth. I can't imagine spending eternity without her companionship every day. I can't imagine that for the first time we will be two sinless people in communion. As good as it is right now, how much unbelievably better will it be? And she always looks at me and says, it'll be okay. You'll be happy. I can't wrap my brain around how I'll be happy. But I know I will be, but I will be in the presence of someone far greater continually every moment of eternity. In his presence, enjoying him forever, completely loved and accepted. Third, this promise means you will live forever in the presence of the one you love the most, in the most beautiful setting you could ever imagine. And I put all those three together, and ultimately Jesus is promising you all the human heart could ever want for those who conquer. The presence of God in the paradise of God forever. Love, presence, acceptance, and beauty. So one question. Will you choose to remember and repent. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your words are hard. They're hard because they peel back the veneer that we have used and exposed that there is a problem. And Father, I have to admit that too many times I am doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And we as people, I don't know how many here, but we as human beings have a tendency 
in so many relationships of our lives to be doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stir in us a reality of who you are, what you've done, how much you love us, and do that in a way that stirs our heart for you and for Jesus and all he's done for us and for the Holy Spirit and his continual presence with us. God, may you help us as people who I believe want to do the right things, help us to grow in not only our obedience to you, but that it would grow from a heart that loves you greatly. In your son's name, amen.